Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is NBC Supervising Sound Editor Robert Siciliano. But first of all, streaming numbers. Yes, every single major music streaming platform now has pretty good numbers, even YouTube. So Spotify is somewhere around 100 million paid subscribers. Apple is around 50 million paid subscribers. Amazon is thought to be around 30 million paid subscribers. They don't really release that information. Neither does Google slash YouTube, but it's been thought that they have 15 million subscribers. And they've alluded to that, but they haven't said whether, in fact, it's paid or just general free subscribers or a combination. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I go to YouTube, there's these annoying pop-ups that come up and ask me to join YouTube Music. I don't want to. (laughs) At least not yet. Although I've heard that people have, in fact, subscribed, kind of like it. YouTube Music and Google Play Music offer about the same things. Costs about the same, $9.99 a month, just for music. If you want to extend all the features to YouTube on the visual side as well, so there's no commercials, it'll cost you $11.99 a month. Now, that being said, YouTube has 1.8 billion monthly users. So think about that, 1.8 billion monthly users. And they only got 15 million subscribers. So they're obviously not doing something right. Although, you know, Google is one of those companies where they've tried a lot of things and not many has worked. The only things that they've been good at is a search engine. They've been really good at AdSense, although they didn't come up with that. They bought that. And buying YouTube. That was a really good decision as well. Some of their basic apps are good. But they're, they've had a lot of misses over time here. And one of the things they're not good at is marketing. And we're seeing that right now, as a matter of fact, as YouTube music kind of struggles. Now, one of the things they're trying to do is extend the reach by going more live. And they just live stream Coachella. And coming up pretty soon, Lollapalooza as well. I think we're going to see more of that. And they're going to try to cut that out as their niche. But they have to do something or else they will never catch Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and anyone else for that matter. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, it looks like the major labels are embracing high-res audio again. Boy, we've seen this picture before. I lived through it. But now, they've actually released 400,000 high-res audio tracks and 33.5 thousand albums. So that's a whole lot. They're releasing a thousand a month in high res. Now, what is high res? It's defined as 48K 24 bit or 44.1 24 bit and above. Now, we all want to see 9624. In fact, there's a lot of that out there because I think most engineers, producers record 
at 96k these days at least if they're using a studio it tends to happen if they're using their home studios i'm not sure all that being said as long as your cd quality that's what's considered high res these days and i think we're seeing more well i know we're seeing more and more of it because these figures 78 percent of the top 10 last year was released in high res 79 percent of the all-time best streaming tracks are available in high res once again I lived through this back in the DVD audio and SACD disc days where the record labels thought that what would happen is they would make a lot more money on high-res audio. And it never happened. The reason why is people don't care about audio quality. They care about convenience. If they get audio quality that's extended and it's free, they like it, but they don't want to pay extra for it. Except if you're an audiophile. Audiophiles will always pay for that, and they have been. They've been paying all all day long on that. That being said, now I think we're back at that crossroads again, where we're seeing that, once again, quality doesn't matter as much. But the bar is getting lower, or I should say higher. Depends on which way you look at it. In terms of the feature set that streaming services have to offer, What we're going to see pretty soon is that the only feature that a streaming service can offer is high res. So in other words, just to get your business, it'll be free. You won't have to pay any extra money. In the meantime, you're going to have to. And if you really care about audio, you'll do it. It could be just a little more money to a whole lot more money. Just depends on what you're willing to pay for it. But high res audio is coming. My guest today is Robert Siciliano, who started as a music recording engineer but by almost a quirk of fate got a temp job at NBC that turned into a career. In the interview, we talked about making the transition to post-production, the turnaround time for an audio job, dealing with audio that isn't well recorded, and much more. I spoke with Robert via phone from New York City. First of all, how did you get started in the business? I saw on your LinkedIn page there was a drum kit there, so I assume you're a drummer, right? Yes, I play the drums. I play the drums. I've played, uh, I could play enough guitar and piano to write music, you know, write my own music and figure out songs, things like that. But mainly I'm a drummer. I've been playing drums since I'm 10 years old. So that's, uh, I'm 55, 45 years now. Okay. So I guess you started like most of us where you started as a musician playing in bands. I started as a musician playing in bands and the way it all fell out for me was, I guess I maybe was around 15 years old. I had an older brother who was a guitar player. So we started playing together and wound up going to these local uh, studios, you know, where you could rehearse. Mm-hmm. And one of them was inside of like a storage building, kind of crazy thing. And they built like a little recording setup, and they had uh, the other, you know, all the rehearsal rooms, and everything. So I started to work there when I was about 15 or 16 to just try to, you know, get a job, make a money, be there. And I could practice the drums on my off time, things like that. And then I started to learn a little more and learn a little more. And I had some friends had a different studio, so I went and worked with them in their rehearsal studio. And then they started a, a live entertainment thing, so then I went out and did all their PA work for them for a couple of years. Then they built a recording room, so then we started there. So I kind of just was always in it because I was a musician. So I was always in studios and doing that stuff. And more and more, I wound up uh, staying in the studios until I said, you know what, I guess I was, uh, I was playing about five or six nights a week in cover bands and an original band at the same time. And then I would work during the day as a machinist, as strange as that sounds. Hmm. I had gotten a job as a machinist, and I did that all day, and then I played all night. And I guess about 28 years old, 26 years old, I think, 
Now, I still was working in the recording studios with my friends. They had small studios, and then I went to a couple of different local ones in New Jersey that needed help. And because I had been around so much, I picked everything up, I guess, pretty quickly. And people kept giving me work, and I just kept ending up in studios. And then I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to do this all the time. So then in my late 20s, I transitioned over to just working in studios. And I did that up until the early 90s. It was at that point where I figured out, you know, I think I mentioned to you in my email, I came, I had a friend that worked at NBC, so I came over there. He said, can you come over for a couple of days and just help out on vacation relief? It was for three days, and then it turned into a week, and then it turned into a month, and then it's, would you like to stay? <laughs> and I kind of was like, no, not really. I really, you know, love music, and I want to be there. And all the signs in New York City were saying probably not a good place to be at the time because everything was starting to close. Mm -hmm. So I said, let me stay for like a year and do both of them. Now, at that time, I was working at River Sound. It was a studio that Gary Katz and Donald Fagan used to own in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And I was also working in Bear Tracks, which was Pirate Gyrus Place, Jay Beckenstein. And I was doing that for about four years simultaneously. And I went and talked to everybody and said, hey, listen, can, you know, is it going to be a problem if I do this? I want to try and do, work this out to do that, stay with NBC at the same time and see how things pan out. And really, I mean, it must have been over the course of the year, around three or four or five where everything just kind of fell out in New York here. And I wound up staying at NBC. I said, well, you know what? It probably wouldn't be the smartest move for me to leave this at the moment. And NBC was kind of a blessing and surprise because for me, I came in and they were new to the post-production thing as far as audio went. You know, they were doing more. The editor was mixing his own stuff and everything kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I got to work with them to put together a couple of Pro Tools rooms, post-production rooms, and create a whole workflow and do all of their promotions work and their cleanup work. And, you know, so it turned into a very good, happy accent, let's just say. Well, you can't beat the fact that it's steady work. <laughs> NBC's not going to go out of business. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, there's that. But it's all right. I mean, you're still doing something you like to do. You like, I, I wish I could stretch myself further with it, you know, because you're not doing the same thing as you were doing in music. In music, you're always trying to, you know, test your boundaries and make something better and better. But but yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm doing audio and uh, I've had a very fortunate life, you know. I've been very blessed with the happy accidents that have happened in my life. So at NBC, have you only done post work and post audio? I've done post work and I've done some live work also in the studios, not outside, not road work, but uh, studio work on some of the different shows over the years, but mostly post-production. Most, you know, the first five or six years, I was in the studios a lot. And then after that, I kind of filtered away from that, stayed more into the post-production areas. Is that something you prefer then? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think so. I like music. So when I, when I had the opportunity to go one way or the other when I was younger, I kind of thought I would never ever go near post-production. Like it was, it was just an unthinkable thing. And oddly enough, that's where I wound up. But, uh, but I like music. That's, that's what I prefer. The live thing, you know, look, I don't really care if something is live or not live. Or it doesn't phase me too much. I feel like if you come into something prepared and you're sure of yourself and you know what you're doing, you're going to be okay. So I don't really get frazzled like that. The bigger thing with the live thing is the people around you. It's a very stressful environment. And people seem to like bringing the stress level up as far as they can at all times. <laughs> you know, and that's in music too. I mean, in every situation. So I try not to let that happen to me. I try to keep myself together and, you know, I, I know what I know how to do and I know what it takes time-wise to do that. And I've done this so long, I know how to, to cheat to make that work. You know, maybe when you, you give me three minutes to do a 25-minute thing, maybe I know I can't do a 25-minute job, but I know how to get from A to Z and fill in the blanks 
and build in layers so that you're always going to get something presentable from the first minute on. The second minute, it's going to be a little better. The third minute, it's going to be a little more colorful. The fourth minute, it's going to be even better. But, you know, you learn to deal with that. You learn to, to work in those ways so that you never get trapped in those corners of somebody, you know, just shut the door on you and now you got something half finished. Mm, yeah, right. Are you always working on the same shows? No. No, a lot of what I do now is mostly uh, promotions for news. Do you prefer that to, to working on shows? Uh, no. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, you know, news is, news is always changing. News is, you know, you don't have a lot of time to do things. It's a very time-sensitive thing because it's happening today. So what you're working on is for today, and then by tomorrow it's something different. With a show, you get more time, and you can really play a lot more and be more creative. And that would be okay, too. You know, my love's always in music. Yeah. That's where I, that's where my plan is to go back to, uh, you know, over the next few years. Just gravitate now back more towards that. And that's what I'll do with my time once I stop working in, uh, in corporate America. I'll go back to working on my own and hopefully maybe work on some music again, maybe develop some younger kids, maybe just help some people if I can learn the business a little better. You know, it's always a, it, it is always a fight, especially. I, I was very attracted. I think it was a Nimbus show that you did oh, yeah. a mentoring session yeah. you know and, and it was because you touched on all subjects that kind of get to me and it was i think you touched on plugins at one point or eq settings or compression settings you know that's always like the big questions also oh, so what's your setting what's this what's that i don't have one i like to listen to what's going on first mm -hmm. when i hear what's wrong i figure out how to fix it i don't i don't figure out how to cover it up before i even know what it is you know i see that a lot you know these days i see that People sit down and just apply a bunch of things before they actually even heard the audio. And uh, I don't know. To me, that's, you know, craziness. You need to hear what you're dealing with and decide what you want to fix in the audio before you decide what you want to add to it. The direction I come from when I sit down is more of a subtractive than additive. What's wrong and how do I get rid of the bad part? Once I get rid of the bad part, I can figure out how to fix the good part <laughs> or accentuate the good stuff. Or maybe there is nothing to do at that point. Maybe I got rid of the bad and now it's good. Yeah. Well, is is there one thing that you see over and over that you have to fix? In sound itself, you mean in the audio? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the audio that you get, is there something that, that seems to keep on popping up over and over that's, that's the same problem? I would say that across the board, you know, with what stuff I do at home, what stuff I do working off of friends, whatever it is, I think the problem is just a lot of the times not well-recorded audio. Hmm. And you're trying to repair things that you probably shouldn't have to repair. You're trying to make something sound good that probably could have sounded good from the start. I mean, from where I started, you know, it was a, this was another thing you talked about. You talked about being around good people, great engineers, great producers, great artists themselves. And when I came from that world, you know, you came from a world where you were recording these people in the hopefully the best of situations with great equipment, great microphones. Even if it was a drum set, you know, they would make sure that those drums were tuned properly and maybe even to pitch, depending on the artist. And you kind of sat down and you, you did what you had to do to record it. But when you recorded it, it was a beautiful thing. I feel like a lot of audio education has left. Not everywhere, obviously, but I mean, I just think that, especially with home studios and all that, there's a lot less attention to really learning about audio from the ground up and getting it right. It's hard to say, you know? Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I have a story that illustrates that, that you'll appreciate. I have a, a friend who's won, I don't know, 17, 18 Grammys, mostly Latin Grammys, and he has a studio in Thousand Oaks, California, which is outside of Los Angeles somewhat. 
And Britney Spears lives in the area. She didn't want to go into the big Hollywood studios, wouldn't stay local, so came into his studio. So he went out and he rented a beautiful C12, and he got his best uh, 1073 preamp and a nice old LA-2A, and he knew the signal path was just as good as you can get. She comes in, she starts to sing, and he said his face just dropped because it sounded so horrible. But everybody around, the producer, every, everybody just thought it was fine, so he didn't say anything. And finally, after everybody left, he went over and he looked at the producer's template that he had, the Pro Tools template, and there were five plugins that he was recording through. Some of the EQ was contradictory. So in other words, it was boosting 5K on one, and then on another one, it was cutting 5K. And he said as, as soon as he bypassed everything, there was the beautiful C12 sound. Mm-hmm. So th- that's the perfect illustration, I think, to people doing things because they think they should, or you know, not listening to what they're getting first. You know, I, I, it's funny you bring that up. I did a, an outside job many years ago, and I got—I was fortunate enough to be in the early days of Pro Tools when it was Sound Designer and all that. So I get these calls to come and look at something, and I went to look at a, a thing, and it really had nothing to do with Pro Tools. It was just a recording thing, but they said. We recorded this thing, we brought these people in, we can't bring this artist back, it's all destroyed, what can we do with it? So I sat down, and I said, well, let's just see what it is first, because nobody was there, it was just the the producers and a a Pro Tools session. So I opened it up, and I listened, and I'm like, wow, that's really bad. (laughs) I mean, it is crushed, it's distorted, it's everything you can imagine. So I put the fader up to zero, it sounds terrible, I go into the inserts, there's a compressor knocking it down by 34 dB. (laughs) squashing it down to nothing. And then he's adding like plus, I forgot, 12 on two different EQs <laughs> to bring it back up from when he just squashed. So I said, listen, let's just see what we got here. Let's turn everything off and start over. We moved the audio to a separate channel. We left that other channel alone. I didn't even want to bypass it. Let's just move it over. We got a million channels here. We move it over. I put the channel to zero. It is clear as a bell <laughs> and it's at perfect zero. And they're like, what'd you do? I said, I didn't do anything. I just turned off everything that the other person put on it. I, I have no idea. It was recorded fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just the way they mixed it. But it's the same kind of concept the what you just said. It's, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the sound they're going for or they don't know that it's any different. I noticed that one thing I noticed is that there's probably a big difference between the, the music industry and the, uh, or at least it was when I was there, and the post-production industry is that because of commercial TV and all, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, people competing to overcompress their stuff as much as they can to get out in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that actually helps the quality of your sound outside of maybe made you a little louder than somebody else. But all the artifacting that comes along with that is there. So I don't know that it helps you, but I noticed that's a very big thing. I mean, I've always you know, seen that here in the post world. Uh, in the music world, you know, people have been slamming things for a long time. And I think this sl- effect of slamming things with a piece of tape was different than the effects of slamming things in the digital world. So, yeah. you know, so a lot of, a lot of times in the, in the, in the analog world, right. You did it for an effect, yeah. not, not, to get it, not to get it louder or in front of something or this or that, but it was just because you wanted the sound of that. Now they're doing it just to raise the level. And I don't think it's translating as well as it maybe did in the analog world. Well, isn't it true that now 
everyone is recording to I, I don't know what the the luffs level is for is it what minus 23 luffs I, I think for television and you can't go beyond that? some do it minus 23 and I've heard people do two minus 24 but yeah right around that yeah so if you're doing that it doesn't matter how much you crush it because if you go beyond you know minus 23 luffs then you're in trouble in television yeah and it's supposed to be everywhere but in the in the commercial world I don't think it my personal feeling is that's why that all came into play mm-hmm. is because out in the commercial world, you had big companies competing with other big companies, you know, to have their spot sound better or louder or highlighted. And I feel like that kind of kept building and building and building. And that's how we got to the minus 23 point. Okay. Well, we're going to have to figure out how to control this somehow. So, you know, your center channel is going to have to basically your, your VO or dialogue, or whatever is going to have to be based around this number. And then you can build your mix around that. And I guess that was somebody's or many people's ideas of how to rein in the problem that was running out of control. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, that was my impression of it. Did you get that impression or? Yeah, well, that, that's what I heard the way. And, and it does seem to work. I mean, we have much more uniformity when you go from channel to channel. Um, and But there's the occasional commercial that jumps out. And I always scratch my head and I'm thinking to myself, oh, wait, I, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> but yet it does. A lot less. Let me ask you about the gear that you use. Are are you using Pro Tools still? Yes. Yeah, I always use Pro Tools. Okay. Home, work, wherever. Yeah. That being said, are there certain plugins that you always come back to that you use most of the time? I have my favorite EQs, the third-party EQs and and, and compressors and things. What I use a lot of those, and I use that on almost, you know, all the time. But I do a lot of effects work, too, because I do a lot of... A lot of sound creation. I, I take a bunch of sounds together. I take strange sounds and turn them into a different sound. So I kind of have a template, a palette, let's say. So I have my little palette of stuff, and then I go in there and try to reconstruct everything and create different kinds of sounds. Some shows are very creative-based shows. And, and even, you know, I'd say even when I do music, I do that a lot, too. I have, you know, the certain plugins that I go to. How much time do you get to do what you got to do? It, it seems like you'd be on a short leash in terms of time. You're on a very short leash if you were working. Well, to give you an example, there's not a post-production room, a post-audio room, I should say, for every video room, right? So you, you might have 10 different rooms working on promotions for different shows together the same day because every day is the show. And if you got five different programs on the air or 10 different programs, there'll be 10 different rooms working on those programs. But it all, all of it filters through either one or two audio rooms. So... You could be talking an hour, two hours, hour and a half, three hours the most. That would be a long day, a three-hour day. So you're going to see four or five different people every day coming in, then the guard changes, then you come in, then the guard changes, then they come in. And then you have deadlines you meet throughout the day and time frames you got to work within. So it's a pretty fast turnaround. Wow, I'll see. You're not going to get on a, a, a spot where you're working on a spot for a whole eight hour day, nor are you ever going to get on a spot that you work on for a week. There are things where you do topical, uh, like long-term uh, theme type of things, and you might attack them for an hour, several different days. You know, you throw an hour on it today, and then I come back to that three days from now, and then come back to it a week from now. And, and you know, in that way, maybe you get a little bit more time on it. But no, you could do a lot of, I could turn around a lot of stuff really fast. It's, it's so... It's so the polar opposite of the music world where you, you sit down and you can not come out for a year. Yeah. But in this case, there is, there is no sitting. There, you don't get comfortable before you get back up and start again. 
Yeah, but there, there's beauty in that, Robert, uh, from the standpoint that you well know in music that sometimes you can be chasing your tail for something that, you know, for, for days for something that really doesn't matter. And uh, that makes me crazy, I have to say. I could give you my my viewpoint on that. Yeah, please. Yeah. My, view, my viewpoint on that is, I, well, I agree with you 100%, maybe 1,000%. And I think it was an interview I saw with Paul McCartney or somebody, but I think it was Paul. They talked about, somebody brought up the point that you could hear mistakes in some of their music and the flat notes and things like that. Oh, you hit a flat note at the end of that, or that note went bad at the end of that phrase or something like that. And my feeling, which goes right along with what they respond, the response was, you know, we didn't worry so much about it hitting a flat note. We were trying to capture a magic. We were capturing a moment. And that's what it was about for us. We captured the moment. And then, you know, if there was a little bit of a blip or something like that, you kind of lived with it. That was the moment you wanted to capture. And I kind of feel like that about music. So I'm not sure I'm, I'm quoting properly, but that, that's my feeling on it. Is my feeling is, Music businesses run wildly out of control when it comes to that kind of stuff of trying to make everything perfect. Because I think people forgot or maybe are, are misguided on what the word perfection means or what it is. You know, it's, it's not about playing in phase accuracy to a metronome. It's about getting it right. And that's, that's just as much about the vibe and the mood and the feeling. You know, when Steve Gadd sits down to play, man, it's just, you know, it's an emotional moment. You know that it's just something else. Something's happening there. But there's a lot of great drummers that could sit there and play to a metronome a bit and be flawless because they practice and practice and practice. But there's not a lot of heart in that, you know? I mean, even your even your heart doesn't run frame, you know, phase accurately. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right? That moves that moves a little, I think, every now and then, too. So so why would we want to be so perfect? I mean, to me, to, to, to touch somebody's heart, you have to be as organic as it is, not the other way around. You know, you can't say, well, we're going to be really perfect and that's going to move somebody. I think you kind of have to get in sync with people to move them. And that's what we're trying to do, right? Yeah. I mean, we're yeah, all art. Definitely. We're trying to, to, to touch people in a certain way that what we do becomes timeless. You mentioned before about working in uh, Donald Fagan and Gary Katz's studio. Did, does that mean you worked on Steely Dan music? No. No, I didn't personally work on any of that. I worked, it, was just, it was owned by them, and they, they weren't really uh, doing too much there at that time. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, when I was there, they, they rented it out to a lot of other people. And um, they did do a couple things, you know, they started, they were working on Steely uh, Dan Alive in America back then, where I was just at that point, um, working in the studio more as in um, the maintenance side of it than the, the uh, engineering side of it. Mm -hmm. So I got to do a lot of stuff. They, they really gave me a lot of rope when it came to that. And I got to learn about the maintenance side and learning how to work on the consoles and stuff like that. And, it was pretty cool. It was a great experience. And, you know, that's why I understood what you were saying when you were saying, you know, the things you learn from being around great people. Yeah. You know, when you, when you see people come in the door, people like that, you kind of know right away. I mean, it's just, all it takes is for the door to close and you sort of know that you're not playing around anymore. And you sit there and like a fly on the wall. And if, if you're smart and you, and first off, I don't, I don't really recall ever meeting too many people that weren't, generous and kind with their time and willing to always help, you know, especially really, really high up people. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but even if they weren't, I mean, if you sit there as a fly on the wall and you're watching, you know, Roger Nichols or Elliot China or somebody like that working, it's an invaluable experience. Yeah. It's, you can't even, half of it, you can't even comprehend because it's so, you know, so above you and you have to ask questions and, uh, you know, 
so I got to be around a lot of that stuff. I didn't get to actually have my hands too much in it. I got my hands more in, in that work as far as uh, the maintenance side of things and helping, you know, get all the 33, 48s locked together and getting the Pro Tool stuff working because that was in the early days, really, when that was all kind of happening. That was in 95, maybe, 93. 93 was the tour, so about 95 they started coming into the studio with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get to do much on that, though. Okay. Not as far as I didn't do any engineering on that. That was yeah. always Roger Nichols or Elliot Shiner, you know, depending whether it was recording or mix, overdubs or mixing or, or just making it all work. It was always somebody yeah. Yeah. That, that you can, can't do anything but admire. Robert, what's one thing that people don't know about audio post-production that you wish they did? Oh, about post-production. I mean, is, is there so, something that people don't know? I think there's I think there's tricks to post production. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I really do. I think that um, barring the, the the common stuff of making sure you record something well and clearly and you know with good level and all the stuff that you just kind of take for granted. So putting all that aside, I think post is different in the sense for me that I approach it in a different way because you're working. Well, it depends. I mean, if you're on a time frame or not a time frame. You know, like I said, I work from A to Z. So I look at something and I work in layers because my time is limited all day long. So I know that to do something, I have to look at it and pick it apart as elements. And when I, because of the odd way my life went, coming from music, coming to this, when I pick apart a job to work on, I kind of look at it like a song. So I think that, I think of the uh, the music bed as my drum track. And then I think of the, the vocalist, obviously, as my uh, my VO artist is obviously my singer. Um, my sound effects, the uh, the guitar and the bass and everything, they become kind of a little bit more of my my drum track. It's kind of more of my drum track. It's <clears throat> that's my music bass. But then you have sound effects, so that becomes sort of like keyboards or horn parts <clears throat> or uh, or a percussion instrument. And then you put and then I put them in in priority system in a priority system basically. I say, if I'm going to build a song, I have to have my rhythm. I have to have my groove and I'm going to need some kind of a melodic part of it too. And that's where my bass and drums come in. And that's where uh, a lot of sound effects come in for me, into my post-production stuff. Then I have different sound effects, which are kind of transitional elements. Then I have other sound effects, which are, which are kind of like my color, like my horn parts and things like that. And I find that people don't build in a, in a sort of a systematic way like that. They just kind of go, okay, Let's just put this here and put that there. And then you move from, from the beginning and you start working linearly all the way to the end. And I don't find that working very well. I think that if you have no time frame and you can just uh, take all the time you want and do what you want, that's not a problem. But I, I don't see that really as being too realistic in uh, not my part of the world, at least. I also see that, I mean, you know, you have to be good. And there's so many toys now, so many tools, to be honest with you. But you have to be good with restoration work. Because in, in my side of the world, now, if you're working on a, a high-end television commercial, the hope is that everything was done top-notch and you won't have to worry about that. But when you're not, especially if you're do, we're dealing with a lot of people that are doing field work, you're going to have problems with human elements and different things and med recording. So you have to be up on all your restoration stuff. I think in another element, and this is my element in, in probably all different areas of audio, which is, you know, you have to be good, but... What's more important than being good, because because the audio becomes 
just kind of a background. You know, the audio is not really the big part of it anymore. It's now, how do I take all of this stuff, navigate this whole thing and put it all together and make the person behind me happy in this one and a half hours that we have. So it's more than just doing sound. It's a big project, really. And I think the part of that that's important is, is realizing that, you know, we're a service industry. You know, maybe coming up in music, I felt I was an artist and that's a whole different level. And that's a whole different thing. And if I was just recording my own music at home, I could be an artist and go off to deep end, whatever I want to do. But, but whether you're recording in a recording studio or in a, in a post-production studio or whatever, doesn't really matter. If you're doing it for somebody else, you work for, you're, you're in the service industry. And it's just as important to make sure the person you're working with is happy and in tune with what you're doing than just being an artist. You know, a lot of people can, can, uh, can mix audio. A lot of people can record audio, but if you can't get along with the person sitting behind you, you're not going to get much work. So if you want to survive in the business, I, I'm not saying that you just have to be a people person, but I think it's all part of the same package. Yeah. You have to be the whole, you have to be the complete package. You know, people always, when you grow up, you always hear the sayings, you know, it's better to be lucky than good and all that kind of stuff. And people always say, oh, I'm lucky, you know, I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm not really a, a strong believer in that. I believe that it's great to be lucky, but unless you're good as well, it's not going to do much for you. Yeah. So you have to be prepared. And then when the luck comes along, you take advantage of that. I think you just answered my last question to you, <laughs> which is... Um, oh, did I? I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's good. Um, usually the, the last question is, what's the best piece of business advice that you learned along the way or maybe somebody gave to you? And you just elucidated it very nicely. I have a, I have a three-part system in that, if I can give you the one more second. Sure. My belief is that if you want to make it in anything you do in life, you have to, be, you have, to have three elements. You have to have luck. I also believe everybody in this world has luck. Everybody. I don't believe everybody in this world is in tune to notice when their luck comes their way. So part two of the, I think the first thing you have to do, I'm sorry, is be prepared. So whatever it is you want to do, play the drums, the guitar, sing, be a mix engineer, whatever it is, you have to learn your craft and you have to be prepared. Once you're prepared enough, you sit there and say, okay, I'm prepared. Now I just need to get lucky and I'll, be, I'll make it big. And that's good but you're missing one element, which is something I'm not real great at is you need to put yourself in a position to become lucky. Mm. And, and I was never the guy to go to nightclubs and shake everyone's hands and go, Hey man, it's great to see you. You know, but, but that is a very important element, right? So here I am practice. I'm at the top of my game and I'm sitting in my room by myself. Well, no one's ever going to knock on the door, but if I go to a club and someone introduces me to somebody that says, you got to hear this guy play or do this or do that. Well, maybe that's my break. So you have to be good. You have to position yourself to become lucky, and when luck comes, you have to recognize it and take advantage of it. So that's kind of part of my three-way belief system in life, and it really applies for me to just about everything. Excellent advice. That's very cool. Well, good. I'm glad I asked you that after all, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, thank you for your time, Robert. I love this. I love the, the conversation, and uh, hopefully um, next time I get to New York, you know, maybe we can do a face-to-face. It'd be nice. Absolutely. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send in a questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. So listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.